I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at The New Republic. And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor. This is The Politics of Everything, a show about the intersection of culture, media, and politics. Today, we're talking about school. New York City is aiming to restart in-person schooling in September. But teachers, parents, and students still don't know what class will look like or how safe it will feel. The first day back is only weeks away. How did the plan to reopen turn into a scramble? And later in the show, we'll look into why the recession is hitting women harder than men. This is the politics of everything. When this segment airs, it'll be the end of August, a time when normally parents all over the country are counting down to the first day of school. This year, it's not clear when schools will open, how many days a week kids will attend, what their classrooms will look like, or how safe either students or staff will be. Our guest today is the writer Keith Gessen, who wrote an article at the beginning of this month for New York Magazine about the chaos that is plaguing New York City, the largest school district in the country, as it makes plans for the fall. In terms of COVID-19, New York may also be one of the safest school districts in the country because the city has finally largely gotten the virus under control. In that sense, it could offer a model to other school districts, many of which are still battling large outbreaks. But it's also a kind of warning. If, even after seemingly beating the virus, we still haven't managed to figure out how to safely reopen schools, is anybody else going to be able to? Keith, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. There have been some developments since you wrote your story, but we're still in the planning for schools reopening stages right now. The city and the mayor in particular have insisted that schools are going to open September 10th. The latest development is that the principals, backed up by the teachers, have asked for a delay in opening the schools. De Blasio's initial reaction to that was to say, no. <laughs> but there was an uh, article in the Times by their education correspondent, Eliza Shapiro, saying pressure is mounting for a delay. And it is a big deal that the principals have come out. They don't tend to get involved in some of these policy debates. I think it's going to be hard for the city to, to resist. What do they want more time to do exactly? They want more time to plan. Mm-hmm. New York City is in a good position with regard to the virus. Cases are very low. One, I think, Harvard public health professor said they're at South Korea levels. Mm-hmm. They're at the same level that Denmark was at when they reopened schools in April. The test positive rate is under 1%, I think, in New York right now. Right. So from that perspective, uh, New York is well positioned. On the other hand, I think there are two really important factors that are sort of militating against reopening. And one is that it's a huge school district. There's over a million students, nearly 100,000 teachers. There are 1,800 schools in 1,400 buildings. It's just a giant district. The other thing is that New York went through what it went through in March and April, and that trauma was very real. I think a lot of teachers feel like they just barely escaped with their lives when schools closed in March. So on the one hand, it should be the easiest or among the easiest large urban districts to reopen. On the other hand, it's the hardest. So as things stand, what has been done so far to get the schools themselves ready for any number of children to come in? 
So the kind of initial postulate is that you need to have social distancing. So you need to limit the number of people who are in the building at any one time. And there's been a ton of time and it seems energy devoted to laying out the various possible schedules. They've basically settled on, depending on how many students are in the school, how much space they have in the school, they're going to have two cohorts of students and they will be coming in either two days or, or three days a week. So that part has been settled. The rest is still kind of largely unsettled. And what's been kind of fascinating about reporting on it was just learning the way that teachers and school administrators think about their schools. In the article, I described one of these Zoom sessions. It happened to be at the school where my son is going to be a kindergartner, where the assistant principal kind of ran through all the things that they have not yet figured out. So she said, you know, if we don't want to have 500 kids crowded at the entrance to the school when they come into the school in the morning, we're going to have to open up more entrances. If we open up all those entrances, who is going to stand at all those entrances? <laughs> if we have to check every child's temperature and we only have one nurse, who is going to be checking all their temperatures? So whose job is it in each school to answer these questions? I mean, it's basically, and this is one of the most um, kind of interesting and, and strongest critiques coming from the teachers. They say, well, my principal is is great. I like my principal, but she's not a public health expert. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So there are these kind of general guidelines uh, coming from the CDC and then from the New York State Health Authority. But the point people are the principals and assistant principals, a lot of whom do not feel qualified to make determinations. And one of the things that's already happening is you see schools that are better resourced, uh, you know, that have more money, uh, but also have kind of more human capital uh, among the parents. Mm -hmm. I saw the Brooklyn News school, which is a school in Carroll Gardens. It's a kind of well-regarded school. It's very progressive. They contacted this uh, professor at Harvard who has written the study on healthy buildings, and they consulted with him mm. about air exchange within the classrooms, you know, and then they found an engineer who was going to go around the school with them <laughs> to consult with them on whether they have enough airflow in each classroom. And, and you know, some schools are going to be able to do this, and a lot of schools are not. Right. People, I think, have a good sense at this point of what is the riskier and less risky environments in terms of transmission. And, you know, there's a talk of, well, you know, why can't we, as long as the weather allows, try to do as much school outside? Even usable outdoor space is not distributed evenly in New York schools. Right. I mean, this, as, as I understand it at the moment, the schools that are most excited about this are the schools that are directly adjacent to the large parks, mm -hmm. <laughs> which tend to be schools attended by kind of wealthier populations. And then other schools, they don't have outdoor space. If they have a playground, it might be in disrepair. Mm -hmm. One thing, I uh, kind of a fascinating tidbit, I talked to um, council member Brad Lander, and he's been quite active in trying to get the city to help set up barricades and, and close off streets for schools, mm -hmm. as they have done for restaurants and over the summer for some streets for kids to play on, which was great. When he talked to the uh, DOT, the Department of Traffic, they said, we're out of barricades for streets 
street closures because the police <laughs> are using them all for their fortresses, you know, where they block off, uh, you know, multiple blocks so people can't approach the police stations yeah. uh, to, to throw, you know, plastic water bottles at them. <laughs> That's, I mean, it really sounds like New York in the year 2020 in a nutshell, despite this having gone on since March, we cannot get the Department of Transportation and the Department of Education to coordinate or plan for this in part because the cops have all the barricades. Like that, <laughs> like that really just sums up the state of the city, I feel like. Well, so you mentioned March and the schools have been closed since March, but they have not been planning for the reopening since March. They've only been planning for the reopening since June. Is that right? Well, I mean, so the Department of Education tells you they've been planning since May. The head of the teachers union, Michael Mulgrew, said, you know, we couldn't get them on the phone basically throughout the spring. And, and, you know, we're the ones who had to come up with the plan. I don't know which of them is uh, closer to the truth, but it, it clearly was not a priority for the mayor, you know, until quite recently. And, and I mean, that I, to me is really frustrating. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, this is the biggest thing that the city does is, is run the public schools. When the principals first started saying we need to delay because we just don't have enough time to kind of plan all this stuff, the mayor has basically been saying, well, you have to just trust me, you know, (laughs) we're going to figure it out, right? One of the things that kept coming up in conversations with teachers is, you know, they're like, we are planners. We like to plan stuff. Mm -hmm. That's kind of in our nature. One teacher said to me, this was like more than a month ago, she said, the fact that we're two months away from the start of the school year and I can't plan my lessons, Mm -hmm. you know, it's insulting. (laughs) It's it's unprofessional. I can't live like that. And, you know, I, as a freelance writer, I, I, you know, I can't relate to that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I wake up, I see what's going on. I tweet something, but teachers are, they're used to planning and it seems like the mayor has a bit more of a kind of a freelance writer <laughs> mentality or something. <laughs> the mayor's like, I can, I can finish it right before the deadline. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's like someone talking about homework. <laughs> yeah. but so I, I wanted to talk about this time frame because everyone is worried. Parents, children, teachers, and presumably the city officials too. And this lack of planning seems to have exacerbated the tensions between those groups because Uh, Each of them sort of needs something different. Teachers want to be able to go and teach, but they're the ones running the biggest risk to go into the schools. Children are running a risk by going in, but we think it might be slightly lower because of the way the virus is transmitted. Parents are under enormous pressure and for the most part want to get the kids into school so that they can work. (laughs) And the government is under a lot of pressure to provide these things. When did relations start to fray between some of these different groups who need different things? I've kind of felt throughout, I mean, I come to this as a parent of a rising kindergartner who would really love for school to start up again. Mm. And there are parents in much more desperate situations than I am who really need, you know, their kids to be somewhere that is not home. Mm -hmm. And yes, my interests collide with the interests of the teachers who feel that the school's might not be safe. At the same time, I don't want to kill, mm-hmm. you know, Ms. Jones, right? I mean, that's just a kind of nightmare for everybody. So it's, 
I got to say, this is something I also blame de Blasio for whenever this kind of issue comes up. He says things like, well, I understand the teachers, their concerns, but I also work for the parents. You know, putting aside the fact that a lot of teachers are parents, ultimately, the school's opening in an unsafe way is not in anyone's interest. Mm -hmm. I really don't see the parents and teachers diverging. He just... He seems not to understand that he has lost a lot of credibility. <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. you know, something that kept coming up in all my conversations with the teachers was the school should have been closed earlier in March, you know, yeah. and they, they remember that. Mm-hmm. There's a particular school in the Bronx where a teacher tested positive for the coronavirus. This was the week of March 9th, and he had a test, and he faxed it or sent it to the DOE, and they said, no, we need it from your hospital directly. Mm-hmm. And they didn't close the school. They kept the school open an extra day and then an extra day after that. You know, there was just this real lack of urgency in March that people remember very well. So whenever he addresses this issue, that's kind of what people are thinking about when he says, trust me, they don't trust him. Yeah. I remember that very well. I remember de Blasio and Cuomo sort of punting the issue from one to the other. And it seems really hard to mend your relationship with the teachers union after that. And now it's it, oddly, as you correctly diagnose, it doesn't seem like he's even really trying. I mean, one of the reasons in March that de Blasio had for wanting to keep the schools open was that so many kids get social services at the schools. They get food. It's warm at the school, right? They might be unhoused. So that was quite a powerful argument, I mean, actually, right, for keeping the schools open. Yeah. The the problem there is obviously we have kind of put all this stuff onto schools. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and we're asking them to do these things that, on the one hand, it makes sense for them to do. It's convenient for them to do. On the other hand, it's not really their core function. And another thing that most struck me in talking to teachers about all this is, you know, they really feel like they're constantly being asked to kind of be the bridge between what society is willing to spend on schools and what the kids need. Mm -hmm. And what we do kind of systematically as a society is take advantage of the fact that the teachers really care about their kids, Yeah. right? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and we do ask them to be kind of surrogate parents and we do take advantage of them in that way when we don't give them enough resources. And so in this moment for them, it's really come to a kind of head where they're saying, okay, you're not willing to defeat the virus and you want us to go in and risk our lives. Mm. And some teachers say, that's, that's just too much. You're asking too much. A- another sort of complicating factor is the way that it's a completely different story locally in New York City versus what is happening nationally where nationally, the story is that a lot of schools are being forced open by Republican governors in in places where really they should not be forced open because Mm -hmm. the level of the virus there is quite high. You know, and I think people are, it's very hard to kind of toggle back and forth where, you know, it's it's incredibly concerning and, and outrageous that schools are opening in some places. And then you think, oh, but I'm in New York City, it's different. So I think for a lot of people, that too is a kind of persistent sort of cognitive dissonance. And it would require... I don't want to underestimate, I think, the level of leadership and empathy and tact that it would require to to do this in New York City, right? Mm -hmm. 
And I think so far we've seen that our mayor lacks those qualities. Well, one thing I'm trying to get a handle on is what kind of damage would we expect to see to children if they aren't able to get back in school for another year? Because, of course, we don't know when there will be a vaccine that's distributed. We don't know if it will be six months, maybe, uh, or two years, three years. Um, so if a child were to miss out on two years of school, I mean, do we have any sense? Is there any historical precedent? Is there any indication of what that might mean? Right. So... The thing that makes it very difficult to think through this is that some kind of outbreak at a school that leads to someone getting very sick, probably a teacher or a paraprofessional or a school administrator, is something that is very clear and quantifiable. With this number of kids missing this much school, we don't really know mm. what the effect of that is. And, and that's going to be kind of an invisible effect. Katrina was brought up as a kind of historical parallel where kids' schools were destroyed. Mm. They had to leave town. Mm. The Katrina one is, is a weird one because actually some of the schools in New Orleans were so underperforming mm. that the students ended up, a lot of them ended up in Texas in slightly better schools. You know, there's all these problems with kind of measuring schools by their test results. But in this right. case, these students had better test results than they would have been expected to have if they had stayed in their New Orleans schools. But, you know, there are teacher strikes that have happened, including in New York in 1968, where you can see educational decline for students who miss school. You know, if it's another year, it would be like almost mm. a year and a half. I, I couldn't find a kind of parallel where you really would be missing that much in-person schooling, right? I mean, even when you are displaced from a war in a refugee camp, you're going to have some kind of situation where you're going to set up some kind of school. There wouldn't be an analog because, of course, in any past school disruption event, no one would have proposed skipping in-person teaching for online learning, right? Yes, we, <laughs> um, <laughs> we did not have access to the wonderful technology. That's what I, so I almost wonder if, if the availability of distance learning is thought of as a kind of escape valve, if you will. Like it, it would have been unthinkable to close the schools in the past, but now perhaps policymakers will say, ah, but the kids can learn online. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, I, I think for a lot of kids it does work. Right. And it kind of depends on how old you are, largely. And one of the really disappointing things about the plan was that it really made no distinction mm. between a five-year-old kindergartner and an 18-year-old high school senior. Yeah. You know, those kids really could learn over Zoom, whereas most parents of four and five-year-olds will report that uh, their kids did not enjoy <laughs> all that time on Zooms. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I think teachers understand that. I had a, a third grade teacher who said to me that it was the first time I have ever gotten through, you know, my whole lesson plan. And the reason was it was not actually because Zoom was so great, uh, although she thought Zoom was okay, but because they canceled the standardized test requirement for mm. third graders. Mm. And so she said, you know, because I didn't have to spend all my time on these stupid tests, um, I got to actually <laughs> teach. And, you know, and some teachers with older students, they said, I, I really got to know my students better. I, I really got a sense of their home situation much better, you know, what their relationship with their family was like. Yeah. Right. I'm wondering what the first day of school will be like. If the cleaning regimens are actually implemented, is it going to be a bit like going through airport security all day? 
and also trying to learn the alphabet and how to count. <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, one of the teachers that I talked to, a high school teacher, she talked about what it was like already at her school for students to enter. You know, they go through a metal detector already, right? So she kind of just describes that as as being pretty, wow. pretty traumatic, mm-hmm. you know, to begin with. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what if a student has forgotten his mask? Mm-hmm. She says, you know, and the, the school safety officer is going to show up, right? And you're going to have a kind of punitive situation. Mm-hmm. I think for... Uh, a five-year-old, I mean, full disclosure, my five-year-old has been in camp all summer (laughs) and they take his temperature when he comes in. That takes about two seconds. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's going to be a little weird, but uh, I think... But you don't think traumatizing. You think ultimately maybe kids are pretty adaptable. I think, yeah, I think they've learned to adapt to this stuff. I mean, you kind of walk around New York now and all the little kids are wearing masks on their scooters. You know, Rafi, when we leave now, he says, where's my mask? Mm -hmm. So to me, that's not such a nightmare scenario. There's a lot of stuff that's going to make it... um, less than ideal, but to me, it's it's, uh, better than nothing. Just because this subject is so, at times, depressing, what is the most optimistic picture of next year's first day of school? Optimistically, it was done very carefully. It was done sort of gradually and slowly, and people wore masks, and they went outside as much as they could, and nobody got sick. Mm -hmm. And our comfort level and our confidence kind of gradually increased. And kids weren't coming in scared of one another and teachers weren't coming in scared of their kids. And, you know, I think that's possible, but it's going to require a lot of work. And as we've said, leadership, which uh, I'm not... Has been hard to come by so far. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, the, the, the level of engagement from teachers around this whole question has been really impressive. You know, these people are very dedicated to what they do. Mm. And if they just had a little bit more resources and a little bit more time, yeah, I think I think it's worth a shot. Great. Well, thank you, Keith, for coming on and talking to us. Thank you. That was fun. After a short break, we'll be back to talk with J.C. Pan about how the recession is disproportionately affecting women. Since coronavirus lockdowns began in March, the U.S. has been headed into a deep recession. Businesses have closed and millions of workers have filed for unemployment. The economist Paul Krugman has warned that we're facing a greater recession. That is, a downturn even more devastating than the slump that followed the financial crisis. The effects of a recession, though, are never distributed equally throughout society. J.C. Pan, who is a staff writer here at The New Republic, has written that this one is affecting women particularly severely. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, so your piece uses the term she-session. Can you just explain what that is to us? So the term she-session, uh, which I will only say once. And this is audio, so no one can see that you were doing air quotes. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, all right. So the she-session, uh, which is a term that kind of arose at the start of the pandemic, refers to just some of the different trends that we've been seeing this time around compared to prior recessions and in particular the Great Recession. 
So with the Great Recession, men lost jobs at about twice the rate that women did. I should say, by the way, during the Great Recession, plenty of people were calling that a he session or a man session. So the, mm-hmm. c- the catchphrase is definitely kind of equal opportunity. But okay. this time around... <laughs> Um, This time around, what we're seeing is that women are losing their jobs at higher rates than men. And part of the reason for that is that the sectors that have been hit hardest during this downturn are things like retail and the service sector, and then like pink collar fields like domestic work, which are all sort of majority worked by women. The Economic Policy Institute had some research that showed that even in male-dominated fields like construction and manufacturing, women in those fields were being disproportionately laid off. And then there's kind of a second element where because of the lockdowns and school closures, obviously people who are now working from home are kind of having to do the double duty of doing their work remotely. And then if they have kids, taking care of their kids and overseeing their, you know, online learning and remote learning. And I think those responsibilities still tend to fall more on women. So there's a fear that because of that, women will be sort of further behind once the pandemic is over. And then, of course, that's kind of exacerbated when you think about how there are certain disparities like pay gaps and what's called the motherhood penalty, which is when women suffer setbacks in their careers after having children. Um, And those things obviously predated the pandemic, but will exacerbate the recovery as well. When we're talking about women who drop out of the workforce, like if you have said, I can't work and someone needs to take care of my child, you no longer count in the numbers as an unemployed person. You are now just a stay-at-home mother. Right, exactly. So what's going on here is not necessarily that women are doing less work, because with kids being home from school, extra childcare, extra caregiving duties in many ways, there's there's a lot of work happening, but most of it unpaid. And then the paid work is going away at higher rates for women than it is for men. Right. I think onto that, I would add that There was an article in the Washington Post last week that said that the recession is actually over for the rich already. Um, So that's another factor to consider when thinking about the different contours of who's suffering from the recession and who's not. Because obviously with the people that are are recovering, women are also part of that as well. Right, because we're talking about a gender binary, she session, he session, but actually there are other facts in play here. This is a recession that's disproportionately affecting working class women. Right. Women in service jobs, women in caregiving jobs. Right. I think especially when it comes to economic issues, I'm always a little wary of anything that collapses the distinction between, say, a CEO and like a domestic worker. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I, I always think back to this story that came out kind of at the start of the pandemic. This woman who is a tech CEO, uh, she founded a tech startup. She talked to the Washington Post about how when the pandemic had started and, you know, schools had closed, she and her husband were trying to hash out the details of their childcare. And because she was running a company, she was relying on her husband to sort of step in and provide that childcare. And after a few days, he like completely broke down and he was like, I can't do it. Like, I, I just can't handle looking after the kids. And so she ended up having to close down her company and lay off the employees. And this kind of became a viral sensation on the internet mm-hmm. for sort of the obvious reasons uh, where people were kind of, you know, incensed that her husband had had just <laughs> sort of thrown in the towel yeah. and there was a lot of, you know, men are worthless. Like you can't, like they can't do anything. Mm-hmm. And obviously that resonated with a lot of people. And I think that's kind of an extreme version of the second shift that women are oftentimes expected to take on. 
But that said, I also found myself thinking about, well, well, what about the workers that she laid off? Or what about, you know, the people who don't have the means and the income to decide that they're going to ride out the rest of the pandemic on their savings, which is what she and her family had decided to do. I guess one of the unusual things about what caused this recession is that it's been brutal for retail because people weren't going out and couldn't go to stores. But then, like, even if we say, like, the recession's over for the rich, like, they're also not going to midtown Manhattan and shopping and dining right now. Right. Uh, so those are all the trickle-down effects. And and as you say, like a lot of those jobs that were disproportionately held by women, which were already sort of low status to begin with, you look in a place with a lot of heavy retail and a lot of heavy dining and entertainment, and you wonder, like, when is that ever going to come back? Right. Yeah, I think that's another scary thing about the jobs being lost. The Washington Post article that I mentioned that said that the recession is basically over for the rich also talked about how jobs for high earners have basically actually all come back already, Mm. whereas jobs that pay $20 or less per hour are like not even half back yet. So again, yeah, that's another way in which the fortunes between, you know, the affluent and everybody else have kind of diverged even more sharply at this moment. I, I think, you know, the kinds of effective types of policies that would help the vast majority of women are things like raising the minimum wage, investing in child care and elder care and other social supports and public programs. And I think off the bat, with the exception of child care, I don't think those always get glossed as like programs for women or like women's issues. But those are the things that I think are going to help alleviate some of the economic changes. We have joked about Chief Sessions sounding like a marketing term, and I'm wondering, what what have you seen suggested we do that is unhelpful in your eyes? <laughs> so I think sometimes when people have discussed the kind of women-centered aspect of this recession, they've proposed what sort of sound like women-centered solutions in response. And one of those that I recently heard came from the CEO of uh, an investing and banking website for women called Elevest. Mm. And the CEO appeared on CNBC to talk about the she session and also what she saw as a solution to it, which was that Elevest was going to offer new investing options for for all kinds of women. So, you know, helping you like figure out your debt and budget And even, I think they said, offering services of counselors and like financial advisors to sort of help you get started with investing. And that all sounds well and good, but I think that makes much more sense for, you know, the middle class white collar worker who's now working from home and and trying to figure out how to, you know, budget for the next downturn than it does for, say, the minimum wage worker who was recently laid off and is now trying to figure out how to get by now that the $600 federal unemployment stimulus has been expired. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, I got got, uh, a single $1,200 check from the government over the summer, so I can't can't wait to get started on my women-focused investing app. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> the basic math is if you don't have any income coming in anymore, no amount of financial literacy is going to change that mm. or make you better able to cope with having no income, especially when there is no help from the government yeah. right now. I'm just imagining like an app to help you manage your debts that just counts down to the eviction moratorium ending and like with no help from the government, like, I I don't know, (laughs) like (laughs) maybe try having a different society. That's what my app would say. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for coming on, Jen. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much. 
politics of everything, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.